Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbalay, and this is a continuation of Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have our first caller, and I believe it's Bruce Damer. Hello, hello, Bruce. Hello, hello. Good to talk to you this evening. So, as you're a seasoned veteran with regards to Biota Live, you know we have some news and notes, and then we'll get into this evening's topic, which... Uh, could be evolving in a variety of different directions. So we'll, uh, we'll go through the news and notes first. If you too would like to participate in this evening's Biota Live, the contact number 646-200-0640. And if you're listening live through Blog Talk Radio, there is also an open chat client uh, that you can participate in if you don't want to call the US number or if you're just listening and you have some questions. So please feel free to use the chat client if you have something to add to the discussion. The next episode will be in a fortnight's time, two weeks, October 17th, Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific, Funding Artificial Life. This is a Scott Schaefer-suggested topic, and it's quite a, a hot topic currently in a number of different areas. Um, I hope to uh, rekindle some communication with Justin Lyon and see if he'd be interested in calling in for that chat. Uh, but in two weeks' time, October 17th, Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific, Funding Artificial Life. So a wide variety of bits of news and notes. Um, I'd like to start probably with the Graysum related news. I had some uh, chatting online with Al Lundell last night with regards to Graysum Silicon Valley. Al mentioned that uh, 10 people turned up. Al presented a series of news items that he thought related to the biota community. I believe Asha Yadga displayed his swarm-related uh, development. Scott Schaefer gave an update on that life. And Zan Gill was there as well talking about a NASA presentation that she's giving in the very near future, maybe even tomorrow. Have you, are you aware of any of these things, Bruce? Yes, uh, Zan's session is at 4 p.m. on Tuesday the 7th, which is this coming Tuesday at NASA Ames Research Center. Do you know the topic? It actually is a wide-ranging uh, set of topics by some really interesting people, Osher um, included. But um, for my part, I'm presenting the Evil Grid uh, project. Wow, that sounds like a good opportunity for Biota CDs to be handed out as well. I will have them in my bag. Wonderful, wonderful. And have you heard any updates from Al in terms of how Graytham Silicon Valley went? He, he says it went very well. I couldn't I couldn't go. I was just completely worn out from travel and a number of things. Uh, but he said it went really well, and the um, uh, Scott's work was great. And Scott's recently put put it online. And Al has been doing a lot of research into how a life and the gray thumb communities can interact with other technologies. And he, Al's a news hound. He's He's been a journalist in Silicon Valley since 1980. He was the first West Coast editor of Byte magazine. So he just absorbs and associates news items. And I think, in a sense, he's finding a role within within Graytham as, as that role, the, the journalist and the connector. And he filmed his discussion as well as Usher Scott's and Zan's discussion as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing the video probably up on Google Video or related video sites, which I'll probably post to the Graysum blog as soon as Al gives me the link. Well, the other Graysum-related news was Graysum Netherlands, and uh, 
a hearty congratulations to Gerald de Jong. I thought he may be calling in this evening, but I was looking. He was up very late relating to uh, Boing Boing and Make, both highlighted uh, Gerald's work with Darwin at Home through some of his early viral videos. I remember talking a couple of weeks ago with regards to ways to promote your project, and Gerald uh, has basically led the way with regards to these viral videos, and they were picked up this week by Boing Boing and Make, and potentially a wide variety of other sites as well. So Gerald did a, an active chat session going as soon as he went to darwinathome.org, uh, and I was thoroughly impressed that he was corresponding with a number of the people that were coming to his site and pointing them in various directions, getting them subscribing to the Darwin at Home mailing list. But the important news is that Gerald put in his Darwin at Home podcast stuff relating to Graham Netherlands. It was actually quite moving listening to the folk in the Netherlands uh, doing their Graysum presentations. It really gave a sense that this is truly an international movement. And I think in particular the sense that there are just so many deep thinkers out there that are uh, all venting together on this idea of artificial life. And although it isn't in my notes, I'd like to put a plug in here for Dick Gordon's book as well that went to press this week. I was looking through the promo-related literature. You have to appreciate this is 125 pages just of promotional-related stuff. I think it's 1,078 pages long. Is that your recollection, Bruce? I believe that um, adding... When, when they just, we decided to, he decided to add the two of us, uh, it must have pushed the whole thing over a thousand pages. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'll probably a combined writing. Well, actually, if you include dialoguing, yes. But I mean, the wonderful thing about the book is how central our discussion is within the text. I mean, it's wonderful to uh, see such a strong dialogue associated with highly topical issues, and also it's really a almost Britannica-like uh, analysis of the issues associated with something which is typically, you know, summarised in a single Dawkins book. Uh, Dick has gone to great lengths to bring together a wide variety of people from all, all parts of the debate, and it was a real privilege to actually see um, my name in there, both as a, a writer and a dialoguer, when I went through the a vast list of people that are involved. I'm, I'm sure you probably had a similar feeling, Bruce, as you looked through it. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. It, it, it's a very impressive uh, volume, and I, I'm hoping it gets the, uh, the press that it deserves. Yes, I was having some correspondence this week with Dick about how the, the press is actually going to be handled, and having had that correspondence with Dick and then looking at the promotional uh, document. I was quite humbled that really you could give the, this book to anyone who even had a remote interest in the in the topics covered, and I'm sure they would get something very profound out of it. I uh, felt quite overwhelmed actually looking through it, thinking of the uh, folk that I had thought of passing on the book to in terms of kind of media and science communicators, and I think everyone will get something out of this book and it's relatively reasonably priced in paperback. I was asked by a few folk whether there would be an electronic version available because obviously now community electronic versions are all the rage. But I think it's um, on Amazon's site it says $44 US for the paperback version, which for more than a 1,000 pages is probably quite reasonable, I think. Yeah, very. 
In any case, the next piece of news involves uh, Bruce and me as well. When I did the Floss Weekly interview a couple of months ago, it nearly broke the biota site, and Bruce and I have had some hurried discussions over the past week about how we can distribute some of the services that the biota site provides. So as a listener to Biota Live, what can you do with regards to this? Well, the first thing that you can probably do is subscribe to the podcast. If you're not already subscribed, you don't have to use iTunes. There are a wide variety of what is called in the community podcatchers, um, some written in Java, uh, Linux, Windows, Mac, all, all variety of, of flavors. And that means that we can host the podcasts, which are the primary uh, bandwidth hogs for the Biota site, anywhere we like. Um, up until probably about eight or nine months ago, I had been hosting a majority of the podcasts on Barbalo.com, and I'll move the recent podcasts back to my own site to handle some of the uh, heavy lifting initially with regards to the Biota site. But if you're interested in um, providing bandwidth with regards to the podcasts, that's something that we're thinking about too. Bruce and I have been throwing backwards and forwards a number of ideas over the past week about how we can deal with the uh, expanding capacity of the Biota podcast. And really, I mean, it's a wonderful problem to have, isn't it, Bruce? Oh, it is. It really is. And I, I think uh, several of our podcasting compatriots, doing, they, they reach that threshold where they realize they need another server or they need to park things around, and then they know that they've got the listener audience. Yeah, and it's certainly a, a wonderful thing, uh, particularly through things like the Biota Facebook group, getting a sense of how international the community is. And in particular, I mean, we're going to be talking a bit about uh, uh, Herb Noel's uh, Project Evo Rand. Herb is in Saudi Arabia. He's also the reason or one of the reasons that we have uh, Biota Light version of the Biota podcast, and certainly Biota Light has become remarkably popular. I mean, for spoken audio, you really don't notice any degradation in the Biota Light version of this podcast. So if you're looking to subscribe, but you may not have the bandwidth to necessarily download the large show formats, I'd check out Biota Light because the you know the audio quality is similar. So over the next few months, as, as this progresses, I will give occasional updates to this. I think just by sharing some of the Biota site, particularly the podcasts, between two web hosts, we should be able to handle a, a majority of the traffic currently. But, I mean, the podcast, in terms of listener base, just continues to grow. So this may be an expanding problem that we may have to visit uh, in the next few months. So I have down here EvoGrid update with the view that we were going to talk about open source this evening, Bruce, but I... I hear that you want to talk a lot about the Evo Grid. Some of my own feedback. Uh, last week I put in the feed the video footage, or at least the last 18 minutes of video footage, of the Biota 3 uh, breakout group circa 1999. And I think I've referred to it in previous podcasts, and I thought this is ridiculous. I can probably put it in an MP4 format so other folks who listen to the podcast through the podcast feed can actually download the video and actually get a sense of, you know, what an artificial life community of 30 people all very interested in, in you know, a focused project like the Biota World project was at the time. But what was always interesting to me is that part of the video, I'm not sure if you went back and looked at it, Bruce, there is a component, and I think um, uh, I, my mind's gone blank, the fellow from Sun, yeah, um, um, that would have been 
That would have been uh, Jan Hauser. Jan Hauser. He asked a question about, in, in terms of the people in the audience, who had um, not necessarily a vested interest but depended on the results of Biota World for their continued development. And I think a majority of the audience raised their hand in terms of actually having a stake in the continuation of the project. For me, that was very powerful as a kind of historical reference because you see shortly after that period of time through a variety of factors, a large portion to do with uh, academic and commercial funding, uh, but certainly of the group there, I mean, Jeffrey is there, uh, Gerald is there, obviously you are there standing up, but a large portion of that community is, is no longer part of the kind of broader biota discussion, and if you look at the period of time from biota 3 through to biota 4 through to when we started doing you know, the biota podcast or even when I picked up my editorial duties with biota.org, a lot of change had gone through the community, as I was watching it um, last week before I put it in the feed, a question occurred to me, which I think is a, a question which ultimately will hinge on the success of the Evo grid in terms of a participating project. When you look at the footage from Biota 3, when you look at people raising their hands, Bruce, what have you learnt in terms of how to structure a project that will not you know, fall the same problems that occurred with regards to the Biota World project? Well, it, what's interesting is um, we had sort of put out a, a grand vision of how do we get all these different artificial life simulation environments to work together. And the agreement of the group was the first thing that they needed was a portal, a web portal to uh, direct people to all the different simulations. So that was sort of the low-hanging fruit. And to some extent, the Viola.org site, the former uh, Artificial Life Walk of Fame did that, but that was offline. And then the Biota.org site did that. Um, the one thing that did come out of it that was an act of collaboration was there was people from Math Engine who built a physics engine for gaming uh, and were there and presenting, and Tom Ray was there and presenting, and they got together and built. he built a a Japanese-funded project called Virtual Life, which was actually Carl Sims Swimming Creatures running in real time. And I got a, a CD of this uh, in 2000 and installed it, and, and it ran. And I think that was probably the Tom Ray's last effort directly in the artificial life field. So at least one collaboration came out of it. I think Gerald was very, very inspired by the meeting but the, the failure to kind of do a, uh, an entire um, sort of scope of what we had drawn on the blackboard was directly due to uh, unforeseen circumstances in the dot-com crash that was about to, about to happen uh, only months uh, or six or eight months uh, later that forced uh, me to go off and uh, make basically win clients, customers with NASA and Adobe to keep the uh, keep digital space going, and the fact is, you you do need to have a beating heart. You need to have someone who every day gets up and is driving the process, um, whether as a volunteer or on a grant or something like that. You have to have someone that that's their they're really a big chunk of their job. And I think I feel now with uh, it in 2008, uh, given that the evil grid has become sort of a research passion for me, and it's also the subject of my Ph.D. research. 
that I'll be that beating heart that will get up every day and see, see how to move it forward. Yeah, there's a, there's a complicated element with regards to open source, which is going to be the, the topic for discussion this evening. But um, I think the interesting thing that I took away from watching the video, I first saw it about two years ago, and many thanks to Al Lundell, who's the, both the origins of the video and also the person who digitized it, put it on a DVD and sent it to me about two years ago. I watched and there's, um, probably three or four videos worth um, maybe six hours worth of video that Al has with regards to Biota 3. And I watched it um, over probably a two-evening period. I found it very, very moving because you really got to see, in some regard, the passion of the participants, but also, as you say, the inevitability of the dot-com crash, the immense sense of hope and sense that this would be continuing for, you know, decades to come, the kind of funding and intelligence and intellect and interest. And in large part, what happened with open source kind of represents the rebuilding of, of those ideas, although um, Jan Hauser uh, talked about open source in his particular presentation. Obviously, Sun was uh, an earlier champion with regards to the open source movement. But I think the distinction of what is going on currently and what went on in 2000, you know, 
to get back to uh, the topic of Richard's um, book. Uh, but that is where you take existing artificial life simulations where the where engineers, dreamers, programmers have put in structures. They've kind of intelligently designed them and to watch for things, things like environments like Darwin at home. And you allow them to send objects and communicate back and forth. Uh, so there's a grid of... Um, so a, a creature from one simulation arrives in the forest of another. That's the evil grid, grid broad idea. And <clears throat> the feeling is that that would allow... All the, simul- all the simulations to start growing and become sort of citizens of a larger ecosystem. The evil grid deep um, concept is something else, and it actually came out of a discussion with Richard Gordon during the writing of the book chapters um, earlier this year. And his chapter, Richard Gordon's chapter, one of them is about Hoyle's tornado and the origins of artificial life. And Hoyle's tornado was a sort of a science fiction-y idea by Fred Hoyle that if um, a tornado came through a junkyard, would it assemble a, a Boeing 747? And what Richard Gordon does in his chapter is he sort of takes that as a cue and says, hey, guys, if you really want to show that artificial life is a useful field or is a powerful metaphor or tool, you've got to build simulations where you don't have any fingers in the in the pie you you've got to build a sort of digital primordial soup with properties but not design things in explicitly allow uh, self-organization to occur which we do see in a lot of software systems but allow that to go long enough that you you have replicating forms and you have things that might be called protobiology and so that that kind of impacted me a lot, and, and discussions with him on that was I was writing my chapter, and that's in a sense what's informed the Evo Grid Deep. And step one for me is to uh, be able to explain this to audiences because I do a lot of public speaking in a lot of different venues, and it occurred to me a couple of months ago that we need a movie. You know, what? How do you communicate ideas in the modern time? You put something on YouTube and if you've got a good animation that, that explains the concept, people really understand it, something that's a minute long or something like that. So I started sketching storyboards one morning, just came to me in a dream, just as about everything else does. And now uh, Ryan, who's one of the members of our NASA team that does work for uh, NASA for digital space, uh, is a great animator and using his tools, he's in Australia, and he's uh, taking these storyboards and starting to do the stills, and he'll be doing the transitions. And you can see all that being developed at evogrid.org, E-V-O-G-R-I-D.org. Uh, the script is there, and the first little still shots are there. Um, so there will be a very public uh, public development of this film. And what the film will do is, in, an, in a very abstract, high-level way, show how the EvoGrid deep might work, and uh, without saying much more than that, it's just kind of there's a cube that seems to be resting on a grid of, of graphics processors that grows ever more dense as more processes are added, and uh, particles within the, the cube uh, gradually are moving quicker and quicker and interacting more and more, and then they become self-organized, and within that cube, uh, entities emerge. 
and uh, that I, I will save the, uh, the the grand finale ending. Uh, I won't uh, give that away. So the topic for this evening relates to open source, and I had planned it out to be a relatively dry topic, but with Bruce on the line, I'm sure we're going to take a, a few twists and turns, but it's also highly applicable with what he's been talking about with the Evo grid. In fact, probably the next six to eight months, the eccentricities of creating and launching an open source project will become very real to, to Bruce once again. If you too would like to participate, the contact number is 646-200-0640. And we have an active chat room as well if anyone would like to participate. So as I mentioned, the question for this week was with regards to the pragmatic use of open source, and it is particularly topical because Herve Noel released Evo Rand, and Scott Schaefer released the much-anticipated VapLife that has been demoing in a kind of closed uh, demoing environment at Greytham Silicon Valleys for probably the past four or five months. And obviously this is also applicable with regards to Jeffrey Rentreller and his release of the project that I refer to as Dawkins Puddle and that others may refer to as Gene Pool. And I thought there are a few angles that we hadn't yet discussed and some that I wanted to continue to explore with regards to open source, but in particular with Bruce on the line and with the particular problems and interesting angles that he may encounter with the Evo grid, I think this discussion will take a, a slightly divergent view from my notes. But I think the first point, if you have something like uh, Evo Rand or Vat Life, is just producing a source code release. Now, the distinctions between projects like Gene Pool and projects like Darwin at Home and Noble Ape and Breve and these kind of things is the availability of source code. And for the uninitiated, the difference between releasing the source code and not releasing the source code may seem a little simplistic. I mean, if you get to play with the end program, you know, what's going to change with or without the source code? Well, there are interesting quirks with open source, and this is some of what we're going to explore this evening. But the main part associated with releasing a project open source is actually creating some source code which you feel comfortable with releasing. This has always been Jeffrey Ventrella's comments that just, you know, a few more months of tweaking and then he'll release the source code. And I think within preparing the source code, there are a few simple procedures. You want the source code, obviously, to be relatively uniform, to adopt similar standards. I'm on a closed source alpha with Gerald de Jung and Scott Schaefer on VatLife, and Gerald has been passing Scott a number of pointers in terms of how he actually formats the source code and existing uh, conventions and best practices associated with Java specifically. But when you release source code, you probably should download half a dozen other open source programs in your language of choice and look roughly how they format things. Of course, I didn't really take this advice when I released Noble 8, but I have particularly strong development views and others have followed my uh, lead in some regard. One of the important points is not to worry too much when you actually release the source. I mean, certainly the narrative with regards to Jeffrey is that there are things that he wants to tune. Um, when I talk to Steve Grand, although he has uh, quite a strong critique of open source, I, I recall that that was part of his concern as well. But when you release the source code, obviously you're releasing the software, the executable software as well, and you get a, a wide variety of additional things by releasing it open source. Bruce, when you explain to someone the distinction between 
what Jeffrey does with regards to releasing Gene Pool as a closed application but free to download versus releasing something open source, how do you explain that distinction? Well, in most open source projects, and you can see a lot of them at sourceforge.net, uh, pretty much uh, everything is in public. You you have you make a fix to your project, and and you put the code, everything right up there. So all of the uh, good, the bad, and the ugly is there. It's just available at all times, and at all times you're offering for people to come in and and join the project and help fix things. And if they fix things, then they they use a, some kind of a source code repository technology to update that. And that's how Linux is developed, and 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 many things. And I think the the closed source model is similar to, or it, it, it may be that it's semi-open source. You may have a team working on it, but you're really not comfortable about putting it out to the public because of commercial concerns that you do want to use some use it commercially. Um, or somebody could crack the code and break some security thing if you had, say, a multiplayer environment. And uh, so there's actual real reason why some even open source projects are not that public. Um, then, and, and also, in some sense, doing it behind closed doors gives you more, much more control over who you, who comes in and the quality control and whatnot. So, for example, the the Linux kernel is done by quite a small team, whereas various tools on Linux are are done very much in in the public. Uh, so, I, I hope that gives somewhat of a clearer distinction. I think you've, you've highlighted a couple of issues, but an important point to make is that the, I mean, for example, if we're talking here to, to Herb or to Scott or to Jeffrey or to people who may not even have, you know, joined the Biota Conversation mailing list or are tinkering away and just getting to the point where they want to release something open source, you're typically dealing with just a single person or maybe a, you know, a couple of you know, coding buddies who've been exchanging source code with regards to a specific project. And I think there's quite a strong distinction between what is described in a kind of corporate model associated with open source, which applies to um, you know, multiple uh, participant open source projects where when they're launched they're either multiple participants or things like uh, Linux that have had a long period of time and a lot of people participating versus the kind of experience that typically occurs within artificial life development. And here there are a couple of, of um, not necessarily competing models, but just you know the nature of the way these projects evolve. I mean, certainly if you're looking at something like Brevet or Noble Ape or Darwin at Home, you're dealing with individuals that for periods of time have had other people connected. I mean, uh, John Klein is a good example of this because he did sections of the Brevet development when he was in academia. He had assistance uh, with, from people when he was in academia and also when he left academia, the people in industry that were using uh, Brevet. So... You have this experience where there is a single developer and then who has other people that get involved, and then you have a model where projects are inherited and passed on. And I think this has some strengths, particularly if you look at uh, the kind of uh, legacy of uh, deceased artificial life projects, where it would have been wonderful if they, you know, when the, when the people involved had gotten sick of the project or run out of funding or what had you, had put it in an open source 
uh, domain. So other people who are excited and interested about the project could then pick it up and keep running. And I'm thinking here of Jay Lemon's uh, project. I want to say, unfortunately, I think it's one of these nanopond, multi-pond, or maybe nanobots. Maybe it's nanobots. Um, but that was a project that had maybe three or four unique developers who passed it on progressively. And I think that model is just as strong as the, you know, lead developer, many participants model with regards to artificial life development. Certainly, uh, with the legacy of stuff that has, has gone on at, at previous uh, biota conferences, I think of um, Gordon Selly and James Prophet's work in particular, um, but also to a certain extent Steve Grant's work, although there is an open source version of Creatures I think the legacy associated with this work would have been wonderful if it had gone open source from, you know, once they'd finished the uh, gold and platinum releases of this software, if components of it or all of it had gone open source for the kind of benefit of the broader community. So both of these models are applicable. And I think you shouldn't consider when you release a project open source that you will have to maintain the project for its entire life cycle. I think that's a, you know, something that's wonderful through the artificial life community, that there are examples of projects that have naturally been passed on to people. And the people who originally developed it do come back occasionally. I mean, this is the wonderful thing with regards to the wikis and these kind of documentation components associated with these projects. But I think both models are applicable. Now, if you're a solitary developer currently tinkering away and want to release your project open source, I would probably be the first to say that you shouldn't expect necessarily a, a Linux-like interaction when you initially release the source code. My experience with Noblape was that I had released it for probably about six or seven years before I had the first solid open source contribution. And really just prior to that, Dave Kerr contacted me, and he was the first fellow artificial life developer who had seriously contacted me and talked about collaboration with regards to what he was doing in, in AI Planet and what I was doing in Noble Ape. However, my experience is a legacy of uh, what we've described with regards to the Biota 3 conference in some regard, too. There was a large gulf of time where, you know, the various hobbyists were all tinkering away in isolation. And I think this isn't the current situation in terms of uh, open source artificial life development. If you have a project that you're tinkering on currently and you want to release it open source, you have a large community now that is willing to help you, willing to assist you, willing to give advice, willing to give pointers, uh, willing to do closed alphas with the view that you're going to release it open source per the discussion with what Scott Schaefer is doing with VatLife. So all these kind of things are assistive and mean that you'll probably get code feedback at least far faster than has been my experience or Dave Kerr's experience necessarily. In terms of what we've discussed so far, Bruce, is there anything you'd, you'd like to add? Yeah, um, our experience with NASA, um, many of the listeners might know that uh, I have a, a small company, very small company, called Digital Space, and we've done a lot of work in avatars and 3D virtual worlds, and for the last nine years, I've uh, been working with NASA as one of our biggest customers, and about four or five years ago, they said, we need a really good open source 3D physics-enabled virtual world platform to simulate space missions. 
like uh, lunar rovers or visiting asteroids or uh, space shuttle uh, missions to the Hubble telescope, for example. And we said, okay, and they gave us funding for years and years and years. And we, the team in Australia assembled the best open source components they could find in 2004, and we built and delivered this platform, delivered a you know, dozen projects on the platform for NASA, and they're all at digitalspace.com. And the source code and the tutorials and everything are at digitalspaces.net because we call it Digital Spaces because it's one day going to be used by more than just us. Um, but the um, the whole experience has been pretty great. Uh, we've had a consistently funded team of two to three to four people working on it, doing both content and code. Uh, we put Python as a scripting language because that will make it powerful. We've kind of shaped what we think is going to be a really powerful platform, and my dream is to use it as a front end for the Evo Grid. Um, and it's a little bit like like uh, Breve, like John Klein's Breve, uh, with a few different features here and there. Um, but it's just one of many platforms. There's so many of these out there. Um, but one of the, the, the challenges is to get other teams to use the thing. So just like any other platform, uh, it's a developer environment. It doesn't have fancy editors and easy-to-use uh, visual programming tools and drag-and-drop interfaces. It's, it's a coding environment with engines and APIs and facilities. And so unless you're really into that, um, you're just not going to pick it up. I, I use a long learning curve. And I think that would be true with most artificial life projects. It's, it's a real challenge to get someone else to get as enthusiastic as you are and take it to the next step if you're done with it. Is, is that a is that a fair uh, a fair uh, thing in your experience, Tom? Well, I think you've raised a number of interesting points, and certainly we hadn't touched on the idea of open source components yet. But I mean, you've raised that in terms of how you built digital space with. Uh, pre-existing open source components. I think particularly with regards to graphics and visualization, and this was the feedback that I gave on the Biota Conversations mailing list today in terms of Dave Kerr wanting to start afresh with an Ubuntu uh, Linux machine. He was asking, you know, well, how, if I were to start afresh, how would I do it? And um, someone chimed in, well, start with Breve because it'll run under Linux and you know, you have all these advantages. You can pick your language. You can use Steve or Python or C++ or C. I believe there's the remnants of a Java interface still, which I'm sure John Klein would be interested in dusting off if he found folks that were interested in using it. So the issue with regards to visualization in particular, if you have a, a rough sketch that you are putting out through either a command line or very simple graphics. There are existing graphics tools out there that enable you to give a far richer visualization. In my own experience with Noble Ape, certainly I've used OpenGL and I've used my own uh, native graphics environment that I wrote, which is portable to, to Linux, Mac, and Windows, which are the, the platforms Noble Ape currently supports. And that's another interesting point, too. I'll just finish with regards to the graphics, though. The ability to not have to reinvent the wheel is one of the fundamental benefits of open source and certainly what Bruce has touched on with regards to how they assembled digital spaces or the 
the platform, DSS, it comes through the ability to have these pre-existing components and also a helpful community. I mean, if you look at things like Ogre, uh, which uh, Digital Spaces uses, if you look at even things like OpenGL, there is an existing community of developers out there who will be relatively helpful. There are certainly tutorials and these kind of things. So the learning curve isn't as steep as you know, may, you may initially assume, and this is one of the benefits of open source. But if we can talk about the multi-platform benefits as well, this is something that um, certainly came up with Herb Noel, uh, and it comes up with a, a number of developers at some time in the project history. I know um, you guys have been talking about Mac and, and Linux support for some time now, Bruce. This move is also something that open source can assist with. Um, in terms of uh, Mac and Linux support, what's your thinking in terms of developing open source? Well, you know, what we're doing right now, literally, there's a, another NASA project coming in which uh, where they have requested uh, Mac support. And we were getting ready for this for some time and that we only chose components that were, cross, that were built and, and used in other projects on Mac and Linux and Windows, uh, with the exception of one sort of handler that we wrote that was a little bit less dependent. So we're ready. I mean, we're reading, We're hoping by January we'll have uh, Mac OS and Linux, and that that will improve the appeal of the platform for people to pick up and do, do projects with. And, and if you do it right, if you do your planning right, you know, your graphical interfaces are done, they, they're rendered into the scene, so they're they're platform independent, and you're, you're supporting OpenGL and DirectX, so you're using some kind of library like OpenSceneGraph or, or Ogre, and you're using generic physics engines like ODE and things like that, um, you should be okay. Um, you have to have the hardware, and you have to you know, set up the compilers, and there's a lot of time to do that and try to keep the single code stream going. Uh, it does multiply the work one has to do, uh, and Tom, you can really talk to this, but it, proper planning in advance should make it possible for your platform to run anywhere. And in the future, uh, platforms like Adobe's Air, certainly Java, gives you cross-platform uh, pretty much right away, and Gerald can speak to that. Adobe Air is another cross-platform framework, and if you do your work within those environments, you may already you know, have your, your, your problem solved. Yeah, and certainly uh, Joe Reams' discussion with regards to Flash and these kind of things. I mean, Joe's stuff is very visually appealing, and really that's the, the other component I wanted to talk about, both the visual appeal and also a degree of user uh, interactivity. I mean, these are two critical components with regards to contemporary artificial life development. Certainly my own experience with in terms of multi-platform support has just been making the platform support the thinnest possible part of the uh, development, as Bruce was saying, in terms of the multiplication of time factor, I want to make sure that that is as thin as possible in my own development. However, for um, all three uh, platforms currently, I don't use OpenGL. I use my own 
um, you know, my own graphics tinkering that's just basically blittered through. On the Mac in particular, I'll probably be moving to OpenGL, and that will probably cause me to move to DirectX on Windows and maintain OpenGL on, on Linux. But all these things take a certain degree of planning. When I wrote an article for IEEE uh, Computer Graphics and Applications, I think in 2003 or 2004, I made the point that developing things in open source had its own time frame, and there was almost an element of the kind of mental screensaver that you spend a certain amount of your time just implicitly planning when you write open source, particularly if you do it in a kind of hobbyist manner, if you're, you know, investing two or three hours every other evening or maybe, you know, eight hours a week, you know, when you can spare the time, you do have, you know, the downtime. You're driving, you're moving around, you're cooking a meal, you're doing these kind of things, and the problems tend to, you know, percolate in your brain with regards to what you're currently looking at. I mean, this is one of the, the beauties of open source development, particularly for the kind of stuff that we do with artificial life open source development. So, I mean, all these things come together. I think we've probably canvassed a few important issues, but I wanted to put out a, a paradox, which um, I'm coining with regards to Steve Grand because he has talked about this with me uh, privately and I believe also potentially publicly in at least one of the interviews that I put out in the Bio to podcast. Now, Steve Grand has quite a critical critique with regards to open source as it relates in particular to intellectual property rights and also a devaluation of um, fundamentally what is done, uh, what is produced. And certainly in my own thinking on open source, there is a stark criticism about when the popularity of open source you know, really percolated to uh, the top of, of corporate uh, computer culture and a similar devaluation with regards to software engineering outsourcing these kind of things. So the Steve Grand uh, paradox put simply is that you are almost forcing yourself to be a hobbyist if you develop things open source and if you have to develop things internally closed source commercially then you're actually generating an environment for yourself where you can make a, at least a reasonable living and it can be your, you know, the primary thing that you do as opposed to fundamentally a hobby now, Bruce, through your discussion, I mean, this hasn't been the case with regards to, to what you folk do with NASA. But in terms of that criticism, do you want to, do you want to talk to, to Steve Grant's concerns? Yeah, I think, I think perhaps um, Steve has sort of bounced, from what I can see, he's bounced between uh, doing things on his own, you know, starving in a garret and doing brilliant work on his own and then been bounced into a kind of frenzied startup uh, with investors and business types. Um, and I think that it's a hard, and it's a, between a rock and a hard place. Um, you, you're either struggling for any recognition at all and, and following your dreams, but it's very, very difficult and it's hard on the family. Or you're in this environment where, you know, your work is funded and it goes out in a commercial package, but you ultimately, as an inventor or a visionary, you, you end up, uh, it leaves you cold, and often you're bounced out of those environments. But there is a middle ground, and the middle ground is, and it's, it's, it's very carefully building these groups, these research groups, and they can be at universities, they can be small, small businesses, small research companies, and getting grants, 
and it takes a huge amount of social engineering and years and years of building a reputation and, and building a name. But once you're up at that level, the grants just keep flowing. And, for instance, the Evo Grid, I'm pretty sure that when I start doing these talks and talking about the Evo Grid, that biotech companies, um, not just NASA, from in the sense of maybe astrobiology being interested, but biotech companies, for example, uh, I'll start to build relationships there and we'll start to get small grants, maybe through DARPA or other agencies, uh, gene, gene uh, companies. We'll just be interested in this as pure research and we'll get more grants and be able to continue. And it's a huge amount of paperwork and a huge amount of ongoing discipline, but you can support independent research not just as a person in a garret, but as a whole team where the grocery bills are paid, you can do it. It is possible to do it, and there's a whole layer of society that is, is, it survives on, on that. So in, in my chapter for Dick Gordon's book, I start with the idea that artificial life developers are fundamentally both pigeon fanciers and Darwin. And I think it's an interesting point that as independent folk that are contributing to these projects that may be picked up by scientists or thinkers or philosophers and used as tools, we are really reinvigorating the, uh, the, the metaphor and also the reality of Darwin's pigeon fanciers. It's an interesting critique and certainly talking to my wife this week, she gave a, a, a different critique. She, uh, as her hobby, does digital scrapbooking, which is a kind of evolution of Photoshop and scrapbooking and lots of Photoshop effects. But she frequently gets her work published uh, in magazines and they pay her money. And the critique that she gave to me was, this is, you know, I, I have a hobby, you have a hobby. My hobby gives me occasional cash flow and your hobby takes vast quantities of time. And it was an interesting critique because I've been talking to uh, an artist friend of mine as well, who I knew in the Bay Area, and he said, I don't put in nearly half the effort that you put in in your spare time in this artificial life thing, and yet I can earn out an income just as a, as a painter. And it was, both these things came to me uh, during the week that this is fundamentally rephrasing, in some regards, Steve Grant's paradox, but perhaps we need to embrace the fact in some regard that there is something authentic and good about what the folks who continue to develop artificial life as a hobby are doing, but maybe just some reinforcing, you know, perhaps monetization, perhaps thanks, perhaps ways in which the, the value of what is being done collectively can be shown in even a short-term sense is important. Now, I, in some regards, I do follow the vision that you're saying, Bruce, with regards to the very long-term projection that if you continue to develop artificial life in the way, and this is, this is ultimately Larry Yeager. I mean, if you develop artificial life for 20 years, academia will eventually recognize you. But I think there needs to be a kind of interim message that we're passing out to the artificial life community who, for folks who are just getting started, for folks who are in the early to mid-teens who don't want to be thinking about when they're 50 and potentially being an artificial life academic but would like to see something in the short term. And I think this is also, a, in some regard, a criticism of open source, that open source needs to mature and actually understand its 
commercial responsibilities, but also its hobbyist responsibilities as well. And fundamentally, there are no existing open source bodies that provide that. I've had recent interaction with the OSI, the Open Source Initiative Board, that controls the open source licenses. And I got the sense through that interaction that this wasn't a body that was going to be representing my future interests and aspirations in open source and probably none of the folk who contributed and developed open source in a similar frame that I did, fundamentally like other artificial life developers. So I think there are, there are a couple of interesting paradoxes that we probably need to resolve through ongoing discussion, ongoing thinking, and potentially, and I've talked about this through the both conversations mailing us, perhaps we need a biota open source license that can distill some of these concerns and actually create a license which is superior to the GNU license, superior to the MIT open source license, and perhaps offers artificial life open source developers additional benefits that they wouldn't get through these open source licenses. I mean, what's your thinking with regards to this idea, Bruce? Yeah, in fact, if you look at what's happened with the Creative Commons, uh, which we were working on with Larry Lessig and his group in 2002, which is, of course, a kind of a new a re sort of a replacement for the idea of copyright, eternal copyright. And that, what has happened is that there's now uh, quite a few num number of variations on the Creative Commons license for, that are very purposeful. There's sort of an academic commons license. There's, there's a founder's license. And in a sense, open source or GPL or whatever you might call it as a one-size-fit-all doesn't really, doesn't really work as well as it, as it should. And you find people modifying their beta agreements and modifying the GPL and and stuff like that. So it, it possibly is a need. Uh, NASA has its own open source license that's different. Um, and there probably is a need for something for artificial life. And that's certainly my critique of the OSI board, was that I presented them with a, a license that I had no belief under, which meant that if folks were going to uh, profit from and make closed the Noble Ape source code, as has occurred historically, that, uh, you know, I would at least be contacted via email, which I didn't think was an unreasonable request, but the OSI board didn't have a license that fit that bill and also would, didn't really want to go through the process of verifying the Noble Ape license and that parameter. And what occurred to me through that interaction was that the OSI board was just the wrong mechanism with regards to these kind of licenses. But if we had a group set up, a group of biotins that, you know, who prompted the OSI board to consider a license that we could tailor to the specifications of the community that also included things like reinforced copyright. I mean, that's my real concern with regards to the GPL and Creative Commons. GPL actually has copyright. They actually hold copyrights um, in uh, Massachusetts with regards to the software that comes through the GPL, which means that they have, uh, you know, a legal framework in terms of generating revenue for uh, GNU and the related uh, signatories and folks that can make contributions and particular corporations that can make contributions to the folk in Massachusetts. So, I mean, I think it, whilst historically there has been a very positive, open and free narrative associated with open source, you can certainly see the components of the community that kind of cashed in quick, and I would like to create something through perhaps a biota license that would enable the community firstly to guarantee the ongoing existence of their software per the 
um, artificial life uh, fossils and skeletons, uh, MPEG movies of uh, blocky creatures and these kind of things, and also gave um, protection to artificial life developers with regards to the historical legacy of what they were doing and also with regards to the you know future proper use uh, that would actually feed back into the community and benefit the community in some regards. So this is a relatively high-level discussion that I'd like to continue uh, through the uh, both podcasts. Obviously, it relates in some regard to our topic in two weeks' time with regards to funding, potentially also quality of life and a, a wide variety of other vending issues. With two minutes remaining, Bruce, you're doing quite a bit of travelling in the near future, aren't you? Yes, um, and it, actually there's an impact on Grey Thumb and Biota with this too because first uh, on October 13th we're going to Italy, to Padua, Italy, which is near Venice, and I'm keynoting a conference called Presence 2008, so I'm opening that conference, and it's all about telepresence. It's really fascinating from the medical industry to online worlds. And uh, I'm going to be presenting something called the Biospace, which is going to talk about artificial life and the Evil Grid Project, presence in the biospace. And then we're going to London, where we've got the Virtual World 2008 conference and the PhD Week seminars at the Smart Lab. And it'll be all, all PhD work all the time. And then we're coming back and going to Sarasota, Florida, for um, the Sarasota International Design Summit and... I'm going to talk about artificial life as a potential design medium. And Terrific. We, uh, we, we come on back. So I might go down to the Institute for Advanced Study to see Pete Hudd and go into New York City and come back. And goodness, what a schedule! Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a busy few months for you, Bruce. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time. But our topic on October 17th, a Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific. Funding artificial life. Thank you very much, Bruce, for the chance to chat with you, and thanks to the folks for listening in. Pleasure.